Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the board and are, well, Broadway's backbone. Welcome to episode 90. My guest is Rochelle Rack. Bradley? I'm pretty good. It's been a weird, rough ride, but these past two weeks uh, have been good, so I'm going to ride that out. Good. That's all you can do. Most people are doing everything they can. Yes, Um, they are. Sitting at home and watching the news and freaking out is not working. No, my mom was doing that for a while. I was like, I think sometimes you just have to shut it down, and we really stayed focused during COVID just be together. You know, I did some crazy things like bought a pool at Home Depot to just have like a haven in our yard so that we didn't have to do anything. Yeah. You know, it's very different when you have an 82 year old living in your home. Your like decision making is totally not about you. You know what I mean? It's just all about, okay, how do we keep her safe and still not like kill each other in yes. the process? But yeah, it is. It's stressful time. This this whole election and my friends, I feel like old friends from Pittsburgh that they're just different. They think very differently than I do. And you just can't seem to understand each other or change it. And I, I just kind of like had to take myself out of that mix for a minute. Like, I don't want to see it. Don't put it on my page. Like, not in an angry way, but just like, do your thing. If you can't hear me and I can't hear you, I guess, you know, right now we need to just put our headsets in. I completely agree. And I'm doing that. And then sometimes I feel like, oh, that's not good. But then I realize I have to do self-care in order to do good. Because if I'm like freaking out, I'm not going to be able to help anybody. It's frustrating. I'm trying to go back to school. I've noticed you are as well. And part of me is like excited about that. And then another part of me is like, I wish that wasn't the option. But then again, I was like, it wasn't like I was auditioning crazy amounts anyway. Right. Both at like a weird age. We're not young and kicking to our face anymore. But we're also not like granny character people either. I never kicked to my face like you first of all let's just be documented we're going to document that immediately but you are correct and it's it's a different time like and going back to get an education at this stage it's like you're vulnerable all of your vulnerabilities all of those like insecurities come up i said last night i had to do like a little presentation in my english class and i just said you know it was about like yourself and how you work and different things and i just said i want to just like myself while i learn it was really very clear like i just want to like me while i'm learning instead of constantly like you can't do this or why didn't you do this before or why did you spend so many years just thinking the shows and life would just keep coming you know it's just the way it is all those people in the dressing rooms that i used to be like why are they going to school while we were doing the shows and they were the swings or they were understudies and they were studying. I just remember thinking, what are they going to school for? And boy, wow. People are doing it, Brad. Like my friend, Bernie Blanks, he, I always use Bernie as an example because, you know, we did Starlight Express together in Germany. He's a singer. He's married to Brent Barrett. He went back to school to be a nurse and now he's a nurse practitioner. He had said to me, it was like, when I was younger, I should have been a doctor or a musical theater. Like those were the things that interested me. You think about those moments and you're just like what I think we get to teach the next generation is you can do more than one thing in your lifetime even though you may not want to hear it at 17 life is long enough now that you can have two even three careers you know especially now we're just like survival mode you see me here I'm like this is my garage it's my SAS studios there's the life-size poster of me there's my SAS and shred just do what you can yeah absolutely survival right but it is interesting i noticed uh, and then we'll start the interview that time in both of our lives when we were like the show is just going to keep coming like 
they were coming. It didn't even cross my mind what was going to happen in my 40s. Yeah, people would warn me and I was like, yeah, yeah, maybe for you, but not for me. <laughs> if I could just take my younger self and like, you know, shake her a little. But you know, it's true, Brad. Like the thing is you worked hard. Here's the thing I didn't know that there was a circle. Like I thought, you know, when I meet, met people and we did Broadway Bears or did this, that I thought everyone was working in a show. I didn't realize that a lot of people had never gotten that first show and we're at the benefits and we're equity members and we're working. It's interesting how I just thought everyone was working. That's also this kind of like thing that I, I wasn't aware of. People were like, just to get one show, they were just waiting and years, decades, decades. So I have so much more appreciation for it now, you know, and you learn. That's what life is for, to learn. I mean, we enjoyed it. Listen, we enjoyed everything probably a little too much to the point though, like I enjoyed working. I enjoyed the program. I liked the eight shows a week. I mean, I liked the ritual. I liked the new audience, you know, that, that was fun. Do you feel like at 40, I felt like at 40, it happened to me where it was just like, I don't, I don't want anyone to pick me anymore. Like I pick me. Yes. I think I, I got that a little later than 40. I think at 40, I was still like, just trying, like pick me, pick me. My arm was getting tired because I wasn't used to having to raise it that long. Cause usually I was picked sooner. Yeah. And then I was also getting to the point where I wasn't being picked. That sounds silly, but I wasn't used to that. <laughs> it doesn't sound silly because that's your story. That sounds very realistic, but I get it. People can warn you. It's probably like when you're young, where they say, you know, now get your degree no matter what, because you can always go back and do the last year. Even if you go for three years, you can always go back and finish. Listening to that, like your young self would be like, yeah, but I just want to go to New York and live it. People told me, I remember I was 36 and they were like, well, wait till you're 40. And I mean, you just don't buy it. Right. And it's not because you're this crazy egoic person. It's because you're living it every day, you know? And you just think, I'm just gonna keep doing what I do and it's just gonna keep happening. Yeah. You don't realize that the business is gonna change and they're like, oh, she's been around too long. Your resume is too long. <laughs> anyway, when you realize your resume is too long, you need to shorten it. I mean, I think life should be taught that there are chapters and like there are chapters that are great. Every one of them. Now it's another one. And that's kind of where I am. I'm going to be 50 in October. 50 in 2020. I mean, if you would have ever told me last year that this would be since like, I think like 1988, when you're like, I was 18, I was like, oh my God, I'll be 50 in 2020. Like you can't even imagine it'll ever happen. And then last year, I remember I was like, I might go on like, a, like go to Miami, maybe go on a girl's little cruise. I got all these ideas. Right. And now I think back and I'm like, I'll probably be like ordering sushi in like, and going <laughs> happy 50th. Like it is what it is. Exactly. Next year I'll, at 51, I'll celebrate 50 or hopefully whenever this is, you know, safe. I'm so excited that you're here. A lot of people call you sass. It started because I couldn't remember. I was on the road with Smokey Joe's Cafe and I couldn't remember the crew's name ever. I was always, or anyone's name for that matter. And I was like, hi, sass. I would just say it like sass. It was a very friendly hello, I guess, whenever I felt you know, like, I don't know anyone's name or I forgot their name. And then the cast, they started to call me sass or it just kind of got, you know, like it started happening. 
And then I remember this crew guy and he turned to me, he's like, you're the sass. Like, that's, that's you. And it stuck. Then the next time when I first introduced myself to a cast, like bossy, you know, where everyone was in black and I was in a leopard leotard day one, I said, hi, I'm Rochelle Rack and my friends call me sass. I would say if you asked anyone in Fosse, they would refer to me as sass. Before that, people would call me Rack, Rocky. Like there were all, there was always like a nickname, and I have no idea why. Maybe Rochelle was just too much work. <laughs> but it's a great name. I call you Rack. You're in my phone as Rack. When we worked together, your character's name was Sass. Yes, remember I got to name my character. How exciting was that? I know, and you're like, it's Sass. Oh yes, that was fun. That was fun. No, I think back, sometimes you feel like it went like that. And then other times I think, wow, I'm so grateful of the time and the work and the person I'm coming in to be. I never say that I've become, but I'm just kind of becoming. But I do think back of those moments where making magic out of a cluster of non, you know, no materials for a magic trick, basically. Yeah. But fun. Didn't we have the best times in rehearsal? Oh, the best time. I mean, I feel like it was so great. I don't know. We, we're in Tim Alex and his alligator and those, I mean, I felt like life the way, all of that, like, I just laughed. Very rare to be part of that. Good things, good, you know, good Very memories. Good. I know, and you and I, no matter what, when you wrote in your thing, and scary. I just laughed out loud when you wrote that. I literally cackled. I was like, I am so not scary. And then I was like, well, maybe I was. Maybe I was. And then I was thinking of you and I. Remember when you're in a show, but you're still auditioning? You know, yeah. when you're in the show and it's bop, 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 bop. I still could do it because we did it 1,000 times. But we were auditioning for who would go first and second. Do you remember that entire... And you knew, like, I mean, I remember people turning to me going, she said Mark. And I was like, I don't know how to Mark. You know, <laughs> I'm sure just making people so angry. I do think about that beginning where it was just you and I, and you know, all that flipping and someone posted that. Oh yeah. my God, it was crazy. I was like, that was fierce. And then it was cut. Cut. Cause I remember like we had a moment of competition and like, even I don't think choreographers mean to do that to you. Oh, oh yes, they do. No. <laughs> All that anxiety for something that was cut. I don't even think it made it a week. Barely, like three shows. And the funny thing is, that would be the one thing I wouldn't have cut as a creative now in thinking the way of a, a piece because it set the tone for so much of what she was trying to do with rhythm and how it was bringing in the drama. Like, And that's what I remember about that show. When I talk about it when I'm teaching, it's how the rhythms were used to create something's going to happen. There were some great things. And I got to help Tomei Cousins set it at Point Park many years later. Oh, so wow. I had to do the, like, I was dragged on the floor. Like, I helped him set the ballet, just the ballet. Well, I think and I'm going to keep this part, of it, this part of the interview. So just yeah. for our guests, we're actually talking about the show we did together, Thou Shall Not. But I'll read the rest of your highlights. Highlights. Uh, Catch Me If You Can. Uh, these are Broadway. Look of Love, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Thou Shall Not, Oklahoma, and Cats. First National Tour, Flashdance, Starlight Express, Smokey Joe's Cafe. You've also done choreography for a multitude of venues, performed all over the country in regional theater and in cabarets. And among your TV and film credits is the highly featured spotlight in the making of a chorus line documentary, Every Little Step. Welcome, Rochelle Rack, officially now. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I'm so happy. I can't wait. Already just our pre-interview, I'm excited just to re-get to know you because we were just talking about two completely different people that did a show together than who we are now. 
And it's kind of crazy because I guess that was 19 years ago, which doesn't. And it doesn't we, register. It no, certainly no. doesn't register in the mirror, Brad. No. You know, no. you're like, no, that can't, that couldn't have been that long ago. No, no. way. We both look exactly the same. <laughs> exactly. And I think it's funny that you were like, you know, back when we both could kick our face. And I think it's funny that you think I could kick my face. Like that makes me feel very special because Honey, I could never kick my face, but I gave you a good bite the apple. Don't kid. You were great bite the apple, but I would see you like speaking of that ballet, we're already like almost done with the show and you are in the wings across doing sit-ups, doing like everything, like constantly. We're dancing our faces off and then you get off stage and do sit-ups. That is amazing. <laughs> is it a little obsession, like obsessive? Um, I think, yeah, that it's crazy now because you, you think back and you're like, but that is what I think, I think, or I thought it took to stay ready to do what I was about to do or to be ready for the next entrance or to stay engaged. I don't know if it was right. I don't know if it was obsessive or just crazy or just be like, honey, just sit and have a water and relax. For some reason, whatever reason, it kind of, you know, served me to stay in it. Where are you from and how'd you get started? I am from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I had my Steeler shirt on earlier. My mom, she had a dance school for 52 years. And I was thinking about this today. You know, she started a dance school in her basement and then went to like a local church to rent like a hall. And it was probably at a time where, you know, you still had to have a credit card with your husband sign it. So it was at a time where women just didn't start a business. Yeah. You know, you didn't just go out and, you know, she just did it. She did it. She loved it. She was born in Pittsburgh and she was an opening act for people like Bobby Vinton, The Platter. She did this 15 minute tap, like where she sang and danced. She would be like, I sang a little. And she danced and she was really good. Very very good, excellent. But you just didn't leave home then, I guess, if it wasn't like your mother was going to Hollywood with you or to New York. That wasn't the time, you know, and she got married young and opened a studio. And I remember her carrying mats. Then it was like your music came with you. You rented a space, you were in for the day and out for the day. So that's kind of what I saw, you know, and I was raised, my parents separated when I was six. So I saw a lot of that female like work, go, do, in my daily life. And my grandmother kind of stayed at home and you know did the Italian cooking and kind of was there for us as well. So that's where it started. And then the dancing, it was primarily dancing until I was, I mean, I was singing, I guess, when I was pretty young, but you know, I'm just a Broadway baby at like the mall or whatever. <laughs> And, you know, and then Ryan Stone, you know, leotard with a feather. I'm sure it was completely inappropriate for like a seven-year-old. And that's kind of where it started. But my mother, I was lucky because my mom, her studio's name was Rosaline Kenneth. And I always want to say that because we were RK dancers. Like that was a big thing then. Yes. She had one student, Danny Herman, went right from her school at 17 to chorus line you know she taught Lenora Nemitz Lenora Nemitz would say when when she was five she did like a dance with a chair and my mother choreographed it I mean she was like five or six so I'm like Lenora do it for me again like I, you know I want to know what was my mother like she had a lot of as much information as you could coming from a like a smaller town back then of what you need to do so she knew I needed to learn how to sing, you know, so I'm grateful for that. You know, I'm grateful that she knew I needed 
that in order to pursue a career. And here's the funny part and a good part. Like I studied singing with a woman, her name was Sarah Sama. And I studied in Pittsburgh. I would go and then I would take him, but like I would go everywhere all my whole life. My mother wasn't driving me. Somebody else was, or like a friend of like whatever it took. And my stepfather used to take me to my singing lesson and I invited him every week. Do you want to come in? You want to come in? And he was like, no, no, I have to, you know, I'm going to run some errands. You know, you do your thing and pick you up. Every week he took me. This is like all through high school. I was like, I wonder why. I don't even think I ever thought of it. Like I just, I was singing around the house with a microphone and, you know, nobody ever told me I wasn't very good. Thank God. And so I kept singing. And I think it was... Bossy. It was an opening night. Valerie Pettiford called in and it was during previews and she called me at like 10 a.m. and was like, Sass, you're going to go on. Anything you need, I'm here for you. And that was, first of all, the time I learned how to be an understudy and also how to be treated by a star, which was incredible. Yeah. And I went on and my parents were there and I remember singing Life is a Bowl of Cherries and I remember seeing my stepfather like full wiping handkerchief seeing him it's so in my heart and my life right now so i remember saying to him big al why were you crying like are you you know did that get you emotionally he just was like no i just you know i can't believe that was you because I, you know i can't believe you could sing that well because you were so terrible and like we were dying and we were just laughing and i was like thank god no one ever told me i always say that to my students and to their parents don't tell them what you think right now it's okay, like let them just sing, see what happens. So sorry, I went on a rant about that because it that. means so much to me, like my life, I had a lot of support and a lot of people don't, and that's important. Well, I love, I didn't know about your stepfather. I knew you were raised by a strong woman and it's nice to know that you actually had two supportive people. I did, and my father, he was he was in my life, but he wasn't, at, not as, at that time when I was growing up, it was more, you know, my stepfather was kind of doing a lot of different things. My real father came back into my life when I lived in Las Vegas and he actually came to live there with me and he came to New York with me. I think he would have stayed like, if I moved to a one bedroom apartment, my father, he once he kind of got the idea of, oh, I'm gonna be with Rochelle, I think he would have absolutely just kept staying no matter what. So, but you know, Brad, these things happen in life where if a parent needs you and something changes where the dynamic is, you know, they need your help and you do that and you, you help and you know, you get a second chance. And I feel like my father got a second chance by his time with me. And I'm so grateful for it because I did not have that when we were younger. So, you know, it works when you can say, yeah, maybe he wasn't there for this or for that, but I'm going to be there. And then you, then we develop a great friendship and a relationship. But that comes from my mother. I have, to, I have to give it to her. My mother is always like, of course he should come and live with you if he needs you. And, you, you know, of course, where someone else might be, well, he never did anything for you. Why would you help him? You know, it, it can depend, really, really depend on that person that's kind of guiding you in life. Are you an only child? No, my mother adopted my sister. She was 28, I think, when she adopted Renee. So she adopted Renee because she couldn't have, she didn't think she could have children. She had been married for 10 years, you know. So at, back then, it's just, you know, it seems to be something that you plan on doing. And she, she adopted my sister, Catholic Charities, adopted very different time then. And then she was pregnant with me five years later. And now since then, regretfully, and very sad chapter of our lives, my sister has passed away. She was 49. And 
I was, you know, always like the five year. So coming on to like 50 right now, this, she had passed away right, right before she turned 50. So it's still, you know, you think about birthdays and you think about things and it's still very relevant in our everyday life, of course. Yeah, I lost my sister too, and it's weird because it's been like over 20 years, and sometimes it's sad when you forget. Labor Day weekend is kind of the anniversary of her death, and now it's been, it's been so long, I was even like, I know it's uh, this weekend somewhere, and then I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't remember the exact date. Am I getting used to this? You do, and you can be, you know, you can beat yourself up about one thing or the other, but it's good to feel your feelings and to remember and to feel, you know, sometimes we don't want to feel that over and over again, you know, because it, it hurts a lot, but that's really, that's all you have. You know, you have to go, I find myself going back to when we were kids, when like pictures of when we danced together, you know, when the, you know, if you're the older sibling, I'm sure dancing with the five-year-old younger than you, you're like, really? It seems to be like my memories now want to go farther back with Renee than at the end there. So the unexpected heartache and change of your life that kind of keeps us going and, and keeps you, I guess, hopefully growing in some way that you're not getting angry at life or weighed down, you know, or worn out by it because it, it can do that to you. So where did you go from your mom's studio? Did you go from high school and college? It's interesting because for so long, I, I went to an audition. So I was, a, I was a senior in high school. I was 17 years old. And I went to an audition. They were having an audition in Pittsburgh. Now in the 80s, I will say the 80s, they used to tour with the show when it was a big hit and they would audition in major cities. It was just a different thing. So casting agents would travel and see what the talent was in different cities. So it wasn't necessarily, it had to be in New York. So they came to Pittsburgh. I wanted to see how I matched up with just people in college or where I was. I was 17, I didn't wanna to go to college. I wanted to go to New York and I wanted to see how I did. If you could play back that tape and tell me that that day was the day, was meant to be the day that changed my life. And a senior in high school, it was in April. It was a Monday, it was the audition. I got the job on a Thursday. I don't remember the exact date, but I, I think I found like my first pay stub or something. And I got the job and it was like, call the school, I'm leaving early. I wanna come back for graduation. Whatever grade I have, I'll take or whatever it took I was going. So that is how it started. It was that literally that first break came right out of high school. So my saying my whole life has been, I didn't go to college, I went to cats. You know, that's like been my go-to phrase, but that was it. And then the bubble burst because, you know, I happened to be on like the third national tour. And of course, like they closed it five months later, but the fourth national was just going and going. So they closed that and it was like, again, jarring. I, I went back home for a personal day to graduate from high school. And then after the show closes, you were like, well, I made it. Like, well, what does that mean? It meant... I had one legitimate credit on my resume. That's what it meant. Yeah. And I remember going in and, you know, Andrew Zerman, this is when like, I, I feel casting agents were very hands-on with people. I feel like there was a relationship and it wasn't this wall of go through this buffer and that buffer to get to me. And I remember sitting with Andrew Zerman 
at the time and saying, what do I do now? I was still 17 turning 18. And I was like, what do you recommend? And, and he was like, Rochelle, just keep auditioning and keep working. Like, I just remember, but a sit down face to face in his office. This is Johnson Lift Zerman before it was Ruben and the time that they took and the effort. So that was the shock of it all was, oh, it's a job and then it's over. That was the first lesson at 17. People think, oh, you're tough or you're this or what resilience you have. And I think, well, I was like catapulted into and seen and here's your success and you're closing. I feel like I lived my whole like two decades like that. But that was where Cats came in and that was incredible. I have still have friends from that show to this day. And we're coming together on trying to do projects for charity for a cause, like to see that those people from 1989 and in 1988 and to be like, wow, you know, how they, some of them, they really accepted me. Some of them, you know, of course didn't. I'm sure they were like, you mean to tell me we had to go to Pittsburgh to pull a girl out of high school to bring her to the National Tour of Cats? You know, I can only imagine being like a 30 year old thinking, really? But some of them were incredible to me. And it was the first time I ever kind of shown the way to what Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS was because they were doing an AIDS benefit in Washington, D.C. And they said, do you want to come, you know, with your mother, who's your chaperone right now? Yeah. But that was like, I look back and I think, you know, how many decades now from that first benefit that I went to that I've been a part of that community. Yeah. So how lucky. It's so amazing to see it. And it's interesting that you brought up the fact that your toughness began then because I, sometimes I was scared about you. But you do, you have this- That makes me giggle and happy and like petrified because I'm like, oh my God, is that what I project? It's not that you project that. I think that also looking back, strong women were very rare and you were a strong, passionate woman. It's also women weren't allowed to, like you were talking about even your mom signing a credit card. So even 19, 20 years ago, there was a random standard that women are still put into a box where you were like, I don't fit in any boxes. And you were very much your own person. And so it's interesting to know that some of that started at 17 years old when cats closed. By the time I met you and you were probably 30, Yes. You, you had years of developing this this survival instinct. Absolutely. I mean, you're softer right now than I've ever seen you. Oh, what life does, right? But I mean, do you think that becoming that really powerful person is what made you successful or is it what made you just survive? Well, I think I watched it kind of happen. People would say to me, the people that knew me when I was younger, when I would go to like a high school reunion, they just would say, you just always knew what you wanted. In high school, you drill team, you play basketball, but everyone knew and you knew. So that knowing was a big part of it. The heartache, I never had fear. Like I, that was the weird, the strange part. I learned, oh, okay, that's not gonna work. Well, I'm gonna audition. And I was so naive, I auditioned for like, West Side Story in Europe thinking, oh, it's a, it's a tour. It'll be just like Cats. Wrong. You know, I immediately paid my dues for getting my big break at 17. Like immediately, eight months on a bus. I, all I did was eat Toblerone. I came back like 30 pounds heavier than I started. And I'm now 18 
and I've done Cats and West Side Story. I said to my mother, I was like, I can't stay any longer. I stayed for eight months instead of nine. Right away, like I found this uncomfortability of doing that. And I was like, okay, I'm not gonna do that again. So then I get back and I, I went to an audition. It was Starlight Express and it was, I was like home. I was skating a street. My mother would help me like call it shoot the duck. I could never do it. I'd try to go down catch my leg. And it's so funny because resilience and arrogance and confidence and all of it gets really kind of twisted sometimes in a negative way, especially like you're saying. In the 80s, I would have, I just thought I was me. And now I realize, wow, I took a lot of chances on being me and being verbal about things and saying what I needed or, you know, because you just got let go or you were deemed difficult you know, and you were deemed like, okay, that's just too much, too much, too much. I've heard that a lot. So, but once you accept that that's just who you are, you kind of go with it. And that took a long time. There was definitely, Brad, there was probably so much in my heart. I remember so many tears alone, maybe to my mom or thinking that feeling of having to put on that facade of like, I can do this. And then just always being just broken at the end of the day, you know, that broken feeling. It was exhausting. I mean, I went on a rant, but the fact is, I feel like I almost created someone else than here's who I am. Like I had to create her to be able to handle it. And maybe that helped me survive because to take on all that emotion, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. The, The roller coaster of, I have a job. I don't, they liked me. They hate me. I'm too heavy, I'm too thin, I'm, I'm too much, all of that. That's all you do is spend your whole life pleasing other people's opinion. Yeah, and we chose this. Like, that's when I look back at all my anxiety and I've been looking back at a lot of that lately and I'm like, oh my God, this business that I love caused so much of this stress. I think I did the opposite of like becoming hard. I became like super friendly where it was like, just because I have to think everything is okay. And so to me, like standing up like you did, I was like, I can't, do that. I have to like smooth the things out, which is also wrong. It's like, I mean, yours wasn't oh, wrong. No, you don't have to watch yourself. You can, yeah, I love it. When I also look back, I think it's, I'm shocked at how intimidated I was by strong women. I don't think I even noticed that until yeah. I stopped being intimidated by them. And then I was like, oh my gosh, you know what I mean? And now I like want them to run the country. That's a good realization. I mean, and I always thought you liked me. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. I know you liked me. We like had it. a lot of laughs and we had a lot of, but I'm sure hearing some someone say what they need and mean what they say and want something and not be soft around the edges was probably shocking, especially when you were doing what you said, the opposite for you. We all have our ways. We all have a way of survival, whatever that is. So, you know, that's a big thing to be able to say, like, look where you are now with women and that place in your life. And isn't that really you know, what it's all about. I love to talk about where I began and what I've gone through. And, you know, I love it. I I hope that one thing I say helps a young person out there to maybe make a different decision or think more of themselves or something, you know, just something. Well, I think there's going to be more than one. I'm already getting stuff out of this. So in talking about anxiety and stress and putting on that shield, everyone who I talk to about Fosse just says, you really had to be tough. And that was a 
people say it, it's their favorite experience and their least favorite experience within one sentence. They're like, I loved every second of it and I also hated every second of it. What was your experience? Well, I did not have the history that a lot of people had with workshops before or Fosse or any, I had no connections to the show or any old history. So when I came in, first of all, a few things. I was doing Smokey Joe's Cafe on the road and I was loving life and a like, great, fun little part features. And I was like, oh, this is a great show. It was kind of physically easy. They had an audition in LA. So on the day off from Smokey Joe's Cafe, I went to LA and auditioned. So I was in a totally different world. And when I got the show, and this is what I didn't tell you, Brad, when I first did Cats, I was a swing. And I didn't know what it meant to be a swing. I had zero, no concept of it. I remember sitting with my mom and all of these characters came out and I was like, there's Syllabub, there's D Demeter. And it says Grisabella. Well, that can't be, I can't be, I can't understudy that. I mean, it's no possible way. Cut to, you know, I'm auditioning for Fosse and doing all of this, you know, the style. And, you know, at the time it was in LA. And I remember they called me and they said, we'd like you to be a swing. And I said, I called my mother and I said, I can't take this job. And she was like, are you sure? And I said, I'm sure I can't ever swing again. I made that promise to myself. This was at 17, I had done it and now I'm 30 and 29. And they called me back a few days later and said, we've made a part for you on stage. Now, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't care what it meant. It meant I'm gonna be on stage and I'm not gonna be a swing and I'm gonna at least have an experience and I'm gonna do it. Yeah. So I went with that mindset. I had zero expectations. I had didn't know a step of Fosse. I didn't know anything. So my experience was I was excited about it because they had made a spot for me on stage. Now, I didn't know when I got there, there was so many spots on stage that there wasn't a number to put me in because everyone else knew every number, mostly. So there was like these featured ladies that didn't have any features. And then there were, then there were the Fosse dancers that had done all of the workshops that knew everything that were basically kind of being plucked out of their feature to put other people in. So I can imagine how that must have felt right. if the history. So, but for me, I was in three numbers in three hours. So you do the math, three numbers <laughs> in three hours. So I spent a lot of time backstage and I spent a lot of time trying to learn other numbers just to know them. I wasn't in the fruit. I had to audition. We talked a little bit earlier about being in a show and then auditioning within the show, right? So I remember in Toronto, there was all of this, like, there was all sorts of ups and downs and live events and Garth and people were all sorts of drama was happening. One day, Gwen Verdon, I guess they decided to do like an understudy day. They wanted to see who knew what and maybe just get some ideas of what other people could do. So the only thing I knew was I gotcha. That was it because I had learned it in a rehearsal. And so they had me do it and it went very well. And it kind of just kind of showed that I had capabilities because dancing in the background in the corner and not being in any numbers, that was my only frustration was I never got to show what I could do because I was never in anything. Yeah. Like they set that show in a week. The show was set, the order was set and I wasn't in, I knew nothing. I was in the corner trying to learn a back bump while they're doing like sing, sing, sing. And I'm just like, oh my God, how did I get here? But it took, again, I think this is where the resilience we talked about or that like not being defeated came in. I would ask if I could just stay and learn things. Not no one watching me, just in the back. 
for me to get better. And that served me in some way. And I started to learn things. I started to get better, to become a better dancer. I really think I became a better dancer. That was the year, years that my everything changed. And working with Gwen Verdon and her giving you a line reading like, ooh, you're so tall. Like here with her little, I was like, like nothing can top this. Like I'm good, I'm golden. And so something happened because, you know, they had too many people in a cast, Brad. Let's face it, we were touring. The show was three and a half hours. It was too long. There were too many people. I knew I was gonna be let go. I mean, I just knew it. I was in nothing. And it didn't turn out that way for me. I ended up having to audition for the understudy for Valerie Pettiford. And so again, an audition within an audition. We were in LA, rumors, life changing. They're cutting people, they have to, we're going to Broadway. And I remember them saying, we'd like to hear you sing Life is a Bull of Cherries. And I remember at the time, my friend Brad Musgrove, he was like, now don't go in there like yourself with your hair all down and your wild outfit. He's like, put an updo in and put, you know, look, and he was like, look the part. And I, I treasure that. I'm so grateful because that advice, that little change of, you know, don't go in there and just take it seriously in a different way. And I sang that song and I understudied her and it was, it changed my life. And I was still not in a ton of numbers. I auditioned to be in the Frug for Gwen and Anne. I actually auditioned to be in the ensemble of the Frug because Elizabeth Parkinson was in too many numbers and needed one number off. And I was humble enough then <laughs> to do that. Like that was, I wanted to be in the show. Like, yeah. so my experience is my own because of that. Yeah. And I'm grateful because then somehow every time, and Brad, I, I went through a lot of different ups and downs in Fosse too, but it was more like every time someone would leave, Anne and Gwen would decide to maybe give me another feature. I became the, in the razzle dazzle. I was in changes. I would, I would move up on all of the work I had done. I could sing, I could dance, so it paid off. And until like Anne Ranking or Bibi Newith would come in, I'd lose all my features, except I gotcha. Like, so at the time, like you're like, oh, is a female coming in to star on the show? Terrific. You know, let me go back to my old track and like, you know, but that's the process. If right. you're willing to do that and ride the ride, then by the time Ben Vereen came in, I was doing a lot of wonderful things. I just treasure it because I started off with nothing. Yeah. Literally, we refer to it in the theater, dancing in the third row on 16. Yes. And that's where I started in that show. At that time in my life, it was, it was my second Broadway show only. And that was like, I'm going to work my way up. I'm going to yeah. do it. So that's my story with Fosse. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for all of it, even the heartache. No, mm -hmm. I love that. With shows like Thou Shall Not and also like Catch Me If You Can, which end up being huge flops, but that was also a show where I remember you had a role. Am I, in a you know, my career is made of hookers and waitresses. I played a hooker. That's no, Cheryl Ann, who was a one, you know, like two scenes, but enough. It was enough. At that point, it was kind of like a comeback. It had been years that I had, since I had done a Broadway show. I'd done a couple off-Broadway in between, but it was playing Cheryl Ann, having a scene with Aaron Tveit, having fun with that, you know, scene about the money. And, you know, he ends up conning me. I also had the most fun because I always had to kind of flash him facing upstage, which is now would be completely politically incorrect with a fur coat on and one side, the other, and basically like, well, you know, how much kind of thing. But boy, did we have a good time. And every night I always tried to surprise him and make him laugh. And he, he, he I could never 
get him to break except once so that was that was it but it was those are the moments you just oh, kind yeah. of go that was a cast of you couldn't get more talented people in one room oh, like that's I, how i felt i completely agree did you come up on an elevator yes i have this vision of rack naked in a mink coat supposedly <laughs> naked in a mink coat coming up on an elevator and so i am right yes you are so right that's a good memory i made I yes i made my mark well because i remember also when we did bye bye birdie you had a similar tiny little scene where you came in and just did a jump split yes and like did it, that small scene. Gloria Rasputin, yes. Yes, I, it was literally like a cartwheel cut, cut through or I did one of my like infamous, you know, tricks. Yes. I'll be like, literally, I'll be like, when I'm 75, I'll be like, it was that cartwheel cut through that got me, you know? Those are fun bits and moments. And that's the thing also now people say to me or students say to me, I want to play the lead or I want to, and I, I kind of, I want to like soften the edges to say, you know what? Everyone in that ensemble has so much talent. Most of them understudy one of the stars, right? Within those six people, there's that much talent in that group. So they're understudying the stars. They're going on, they're, you know, shifting roles. You, and if you have a little feature or you play it, you know, you're in the ensemble and then you have this little standout, those are beautiful moments. They are not worth you not doing or thinking I'm gonna be in the ensemble and missing out. It's yeah. not worth it yeah, to I miss out. Because the 1% of the half a percentage of our community that's getting those roles and really consistently playing them, it's hard to do. So I don't want people to have that grand idea that the only way I'm going to be happy in the theater is if I'm playing that lead role that I set out to play. Because yeah. that's not the case. It's definitely not. As a person, you're a very sensual person and you said you played hookers. So this question is threefold. As a woman, how do you feel about the fact that on stage you're, you guys are completely over-sexualized and then that screws up with your body image. There's also sexual harassment. So what has your experience been with those issues? Because now we're much more aware of it, but also you are sensual and those are the roles. How has that been in your life? Well, I probably would have to make a huge adjustment if I was back in the theater now because of maybe, you know, I don't want to blame other people, but it's programming of, you know, use what you have to get ahead. I, you know, I came from a very different generation. It was okay. I, you know, I wrote a song about this, about they say don't flirt, you know, to get attention. I want to flirt. I want to get and tease and toy and travel to the top right? There was an idea. It was who you were. It wasn't about feeling bad about looking good and being friendly in a way, but not, you know, not to the point, you know, where you're crossing over all sorts of boundaries. So it's tricky for me, Brad, because I want to like go, okay, I had image body image problems when there were weight warning issues in cats or on cruise ships, those things that have changed. That's incredible. Those weight warnings, weigh-ins, the fact that they can still do it, it's ridiculous. So that part of the world that we live in, it's got to, you know, go. Feeling like sexual or sensual for me, I also have to remember sometimes I'm playing a part, especially Cheryl Ann. It was in the 60s. It did happen. So I don't want to not be able to play a part as a woman of the now that happened 30 years ago or 40 years ago and represent that well. 
I'm not going to feel sexually like where I'm being exposed in a negative way by being an actress who plays a part who was. So I find it definitely hard to navigate and find balance, you know, but in my world, I mean, you would look at me and be like, oh, she was always in hot pants and, you know, but see, I, I like them. I was in short shorts and a top because that's how I like to dance or rehearse. And I would really probably have to really dig deep and say, I don't think I did all of that for others. I think I did that for me, you know, for the most part. I always thought you were wearing that for you. I never thought you were like, look at me, producer, I'm in hot pants. You were just like, I'm in hot pants because I can wear them. Have you had to deal with sexual harassment? The amount of women that have, but I'm always shocked women who are strong and powerful that I would think they would never stand for it. A lot of them are like, I became strong and powerful because it happened to me. And I was like, oh, duh. It's just another thing that men just don't even have a inkling about. I think that I, by being raised from a woman that she never thought that someone whistling at you was a negative. From her era, how she grew up. So I took on a lot of those things, maybe like a <whistles> is not a negative where now like, oh my God, like drop, swing, you know, shift. So I'm still trying to figure out in this, you know, fifth decade that I'm, you know, to turn big five oh, what affects me or offends me? Because a lot of it doesn't. I don't feel that I was held back by any sexual harassment. And maybe because I started so young, maybe protected by different casts or people, or I never met a gay person when I was in Pittsburgh that I knew was gay when I was young, that I knew until, you know, when I was in Cats and it was like, do you want to come to this AIDS benefit? And it was like, where is it? And they said, it's at a gay bar. And I went, ew, a gay bar. And now like that whole room, they're still like, do you remember when you went, ew? And I just remember like, I will never forget it. It was like that moment. And so I look back and I think, wow, I could have really offended people or hurt people just by not knowing. You know, my husband and I talk about this a lot. It's our responsibility now and always was, but to, to know, to be aware that a compliment is a compliment. It's not a sly fox kind of thing, but to not be able to compliment someone, to not be able to hold the door, to be offended by basic, what I think are just human kindness, you know, moments, that kind of, I would say bothers me a bit because I think it puts a wall then of being generous or complimentary. I'm still finding it. I can't say I feel like I've gone through a lot of situations of sexual harassment. I think a lot of men have been in charge of if I worked or not, I could say that. I think it's a boys club. So I will say that freely. I think it would be nice. And even though that's changing in the director point of view, that's changing in the choreography, it's changing but it could change faster. Before I ask this next question, I just, one thing that is so interesting to me is that you actually have a fan base and a lot of it is gay men. You've had cabaret shows that I remember are at therapy and you are honored by gay men. And just, it's so interesting that you had no idea that one night that was gonna be a community that embraced you. None. I love that. You don't, you have no idea. And I think people live so shallow today that they think something they don't like, they're gonna not like it forever when it might become their favorite thing. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. You know, it's the greatest thing that ever happened. The world, the community, the gay, lesbian, everything now and, and evolving more transgender. Like my mind is 
I'm just like, I want to know what everything stands for and why, because, you know, Brad, as you know, I have a six year old and to teach how to talk about things. It's not just what that you're talking about things, but how to with love, what is love? What, you know, and when it's appropriate or when the questions come up to be ready, you know, to have those answers because we affect what's going to happen. We yeah. affect what's going to happen to the next generation. I'm still learning. So I'm kind of like, I turn to my husband, or I look at my mom and I'm thinking, okay, just pause and don't answer right away. Like, <laughs> let, me just, let me just, because this could affect her for the rest of her life, you know? Yeah. So you take that on, you have this yeah. whole other dynamic. And, you know, for me, I don't want to lie, you know, I don't want to lie, let her have to, I want her to know. They say, let her be strong, let her be direct. Then I'm like, well, can I correct her? Oh, please, at least, please let me correct her because yeah. oh, she's too strong. Well, look at her mom and look at her grandma. She has a long lineage of strong women. That is great. Speaking of strong and resilience, uh, there's a legendary story about Look of Love where, well, I'll let you tell it. Believe it or not, the first time I heard this story was Jay Bender telling this story in, in the documentary. I don't actually know this story yet, That's... so now I get to hear it for real. Well, Jay Bender told it wrong, no. <laughs> of course, for the drama of it. Yes, so we were doing another show that was not a success. We can definitely call it a flop. But it was, again, another group of these incredibly talented people from Carpathia Jenkins to Liz Calloway, Shannon Lewis. I mean, Desmond Richardson. It was like, what? This has to be good. It's like going to be the new version of Smokey Joe's, like the newest thing. We were teching the show and we were doing a trio, Janine Lamana, myself and Shannon Lewis, and we were doing What's New Pussycat? And we were teching very quickly. It was a director and choreographer, Scott Ellis and Ranking. And we were trying to tech the show. And Brad, you know, if we're running behind, time is money, money is time, keep it moving. You know, let's get cue to cue, let's move it along. So all I remember is this, Annie wanted it to be less, like us to do it. And we were still going cue to cue, which was still kind of like not ready in the lighting. And we came up on this elevator lift the gentlemen set our chairs forward and then they got back on the elevator lift and then they went back down and we started the dance. And it was in a matter of one, two, two steps back. And I took a breath and then I don't remember anything else. I do know that something caught my legs and turned me on my side because I was going straight back into the elevator lift, which was 12 feet. The boys were still on the lift when I landed. So they were still going down when I landed. They brought up the lift. My poor spot guy, like, I mean, must have just, I don't even know. So I'm laying there and I'm out flat cold. And I remember waking up and like, just, you know, them saying, don't move, paramedics are coming. Blah, blah, blah. And I remember hearing like something like, and it was Anne Ranking's voice, right? And I just remember hearing her on the God mic. And the God mic is, you know, of course, what we use in tech rehearsal in the audience for everyone to hear. And she was on this God mic and she said, I fell once. And she was talking about herself. And I thought to myself, I'm alive. And Anne Ranking is on the God mic talking about herself falling. Like, I remember it so clearly, Brad. And I was like, I'm alive. This is happening. Sure enough, I wake up and like, I can't move. I'm crying. My legs are bleeding. My fishnets are torn. The stretcher comes and my friends were like, as they're like taking my wig off and like, I'm going to the hospital in a corset with torn fishnets. And 
my friends were like, they were strapping you, you know, into the gurney and you just kept saying, what happened to the pretty girl? What happened to the pretty girl? Like, cause that was like one saying I used to say, like as a joke, what happened to the pretty girl? And there I went on a stretcher to the hospital and my friend Frankie, who was like my everything from Cats and Fosse met me there and kind of helped me the next few days. But you know, Brad, we're so crazy as performers at times. Like I was beat up. I couldn't walk to the bathroom, nothing. My rib was broken, but like I was okay. That flip saved my life. It could have been much worse. But I was so crazy about show business that I wanted to tech my number and my number was coming up in the next few days and I didn't want to miss it. Like I was not going to miss it. And like I hobbled in there. I mean, like it, I look back and I want to shake her. I want to go, what's wrong with you, Rochelle? Kind of like 24 hours to Tulsa. So I could tech my number four days later, you know, basically I can't even sit on the bar. They're putting me on the bar. I'm like, okay, let me just sit on the bar. But I checked my number and that resilience, that weird fire we have in us, it's survival. It's come in handy for me now. Yeah. That's the real story. The real story. I fell once. Jay said I like went to the hospital and came back after the show, but I was like lights out in the middle oh. of a tech rehearsal. Yes. But thank God it wasn't worse. You know, I'm grateful for that. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. One question I wanted to bring up is one of the survival things that I have, we also have in common. We to know each other, not just from working together, but it was from drinking together. There'd be sometimes where it felt like you and I were the last people at a bar. At every party. At every party. <laughs> and now neither one of us drink. But what was your road to quitting drinking? So much of your life has changed now being a mother. Those are two huge things. Yeah. I love the transition into this because, you know, it's absolutely why you're looking at the person that's sitting here. It's a mirror, it's miracles. It's miracles of an awakening of life and seeing, you know how you can be so far down a road that you just, that's the only road you know. That's how slowly drinking and hanging out after the show and having one more and then go, you know, like it was always, it was never enough to just go out and have one. I was never that type of a drinker ever. And over the years of all of that, it just kept continuing to then be, you know, I just thought, I just like to have a good time. You know, you, you could swing it so many different ways and word it so many different ways to make it okay. And I felt like I spent a lifetime of that, but it took a lot of different people in my life that were getting sober to see that were really in my life or like my party circle or the, the, you know, like you say, the people that were always the last ones to leave or the first ones to leave the next morning or however it worked out, <laughs> you know? And I had a great time, a great time until I didn't. It then was leading my life instead of being a part of my life. The realization of that is something you wanna deny forever. And I remember saying, I'm never not going to drink. I remember saying this to my friends that were like, you know, you should really think about, you know, maybe this is something we should talk about. And, you know, right away, you can really be defensive about that. What are they noticing me? You can also be paranoid. What are they, you know, am I not doing? But the truth is, you know, it comes from love. So I watched a handful of people get sober slowly in different ways and diff for different reasons. And I kept having a friend who always planted a seed. It would always be like, you know, if you ever want to come to a meeting with me, you know, if you ever want to just see what it's about. And I think 
finally I said, you know, I think I'm ready. I'm ready to go and like, listen. And that was it. That was the first day I ever realized that my life and my relationship with alcohol that led to so much turmoil in my life and so many, so many different ways had to be addressed and focused on. So that was September 26th and that was 12 years ago, just this past week. Yeah. The fact that I remember like at 18 days, always for some reason, 18 days always stands out to me. I was like, I'm not going to, there's no way. There's just no way I'm not going to live my life like this. Like I can't. And slowly with faith and friendship and talking and life, I look back now and I think I try not to live in regret. I try not to go, wow, 10 years of my life, would I have really embraced that even more without this distraction? Because that's really what it became. Alcohol and I were no longer friends. And that's how at first I thought it was a friendship, a relationship, and then it was not. And it needed to end. We needed to have a breakup. The best thing I can say is I'm grateful for the other people that led the way and that welcomed me and said without judgment to talk about it, which leads to where I am today, which would have never happened. The decision-making, life-changing, moving out of the city, getting married, all of that came from a different Rochelle, you know, a new beginning. A new beginnings can happen any time in your life. I completely agree. It completely changed my life. But I love what you said about it worked until it didn't. And it does feel like if you have a toxic friendship or a toxic relationship, you get out of it. It takes a while for you to see it as, as a toxic relationship, even though you know it's toxic. <laughs> even though you feel it, you're like, oh, this is my oldest friend. You always keep your oldest friend, no matter what. And then you realize, no, you don't. I do remember, though, you quit smoking before me. And I'll always remember that because it was during Bye Bye Birdie. And I was very similar with like, I will always drink. I will always smoke. I'm never getting rid of either. And then when I was like, if Rat can quit smoking, I can quit smoking. It's <laughs> a good example out there, everyone. You and me and someone else who I won't name would go out in the alleyway and smoke in full like costume in the cold smoking. We just had to smoke. We would be so judged right now. There would be pictures of snapshots. There would be videos posted on YouTube. There would be like, I think back and I think, can you? imagine if we had a flip phone like we didn't have a flip phone back then if we had like but the thing is I think about you saying that and the way kind of it makes me feel it's like imperfection is what we have we live every day showing our very best of our lives on social media the very best or the scandal or who we caught doing something else that we don't approve of you know it's either one or the other and I'm grateful that we can sit here and talk about this and you're like remember when we used to do that and remember because you have to kind of own who you are. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing for me to reflect on. Well, I think during this time when the world is like completely a mess and show business is on pause, you have not stopped creating. So tell me about your musical that you've written, uh, Jill of Too Many Trades, it's awesome. I don't know, I don't know what I am. I do know that when you are like haunted by something or it's, you know, for me, Brad, I don't know if you feel this way, when if an idea comes, I have to get up and write it down. And maybe that's from having a child or you're, you just like get up and do it. Like there's something in me now that's different. You know, I wasn't always like that. So I had ideas, things were coming into my brain before the pandemic about women, different, you know, different scenarios. And I pitched it. I remember I went in, I talked to Jerry, it was like December. 
December 14th. And like, for some reason I have that date marked and, you know, I just sat with my friend, Jerry Mitchell. And I was like, look, I have this idea. Can I run it by you? Give me. And then he said, okay, great. What else do you have? And I spun off another idea. And what the point is, I guess, the past few years after doing Abby's ultimate dance competition and dance moms and seeing all of these competitive dance shows and reality shows, I started to come up with ideas and start to believe in myself that, oh, maybe I could write something maybe even better or more interesting, or I don't know, why not? Yeah. Why not? And that comes with that way of thinking that's clear. That's a clear way of thinking and not arrogant. So the musical started off as an idea and then the pandemic happened. And then it was evolving. It was always about women in show business, particularly women on Broadway and transgender character, gay character, women of all different ages, which I wanted from well into their 50s to young 20 year olds. So basically I'm writing a show, it's called Point of View. And it takes place at like, as we're coming out of COVID at a television interview that these women have been invited to. It's kind of slowly making our way back to some sort of show business idea. So that's kind of where it starts. And so these women, these women that have been, everyone of course is like, it's a time where people are like, well, I have time, I'll do it. They've been approaching it with such, um, I don't know, like splendid. It's like, they look. For, we look forward to seeing each other. We look forward to reading together. Nobody's zoomed out. We're just like, yes, if I, if I can be there, I'll be there. So from Katie Hoffman, Felicia Finley, you know, Angie Schwar, some of my oldest friends, and some new friends that people I didn't know that were introduced through someone that was in the prom, Jerusha, that I'd never met before, just said yes. So we've been doing these readings and Stephen Jamal and I, who did a musical called Vote, and I was the choreographer for the Nymph Festival years ago, he works for Rosie's Broadway Kids. And he and I just connected many years ago. And he took on the job as composer and co-lyricist. So I'm writing the book. We're working on the songs together. You know, I, I kind of threw out ideas of songs and then he'll take them and we'll finesse them. And it's a new process for me. And I'm just like, okay, let's just do it. So just recently, my dear friend, Danny Davis, who's a producer, we decided to go to the Actors Fund and, you know, I reached out to Tom Viola and thought, can we do something with this? It's about women. It's about the now. Can we raise money for Phyllis Newman's Women's Health Initiative? So just recently, and it's not yet completely announced yet in the press, or it will be, but we are going to do an event, an evening of this point of view and show little moments of it, not like a reading, but like a 45 minute evening to everything will raise money for Phyllis Newman's Women's Health Initiative. And, you know, already Broadway Cares donated $10,000 on our behalf. So we're trying to do something good while we're sitting and creating. So, and if it gives it legs or if it gives it like, okay, it has a presence, it has something, then, then that's like another step in the right direction. But honestly, Brad, I have no idea if eventually it's meant to be a doc series about women on Broadway because it's not been done. If it's meant to be a musical, it will eventually on, on a stage. But I'm very open to the idea of what it can become, so. I love that. I'm always hopeful. I think that's what keeps me going. I've yeah. always believed that, you know, you can and you will, and why not me? Yeah. 
I mean, I've been all about trying to say yes since the beginning of the pandemic. And I will say that, like, if people called and said, I'm trying to do something, can you do it? It's not much money. Answer is yes. Right. Free class online. Let's just do a SaaS class for 30 minutes. Yes. So there's been a lot of good energy coming my way because I think right away I was just like, what can I do? How do I survive? We don't live in a house that that's supported by one income, you know, yeah. as well as so many of my friends leaving New York, leaving their apartments, moving, so, you know, so there's something to be said about that. So it definitely has made me dig deep into the stories, into the characters, you know, people I've worked with, talking to them yesterday, Marissa Rose and Katie Weber, the women willing to spend their time with me, it's just a gift. And so I'm taking it. I'm just like, we're going to go as far as we can go. That's really ultimately, I think my goal in life is to get to a place in my life where I can give someone the opportunity that wrote something or that choreographed something and that I can help them. Because I feel like sometimes those doors can stay closed or they can stay very tight knitted. And, you know, I'm always like paying attention to who's breaking in because it's important. Yeah. I think it's important to help others. Forget oh, about always, forget about always having another hit show and how about help someone else? I agree. Well, so tell me about Ignite Dance Live. I feel like you have eight projects going on in a quarantine. I do too. I do too, yes. I wonder if any of them are going to bring an income, but you know, again, you're like, okay, why do I do what I do? So Ignite Dance Live, you know, we were starting it this year and the year that this happened, we had done two little episodes. It is an idea of a dance convention mm. using professionals like yourself, people that have lived it. So the panel is people that have lived it, that are teaching, they're giving live feedback. Instead of a scoring system, Brad, we would give live feedback on the microphone right there. So personal, so you finish your dance or your performance or you sang, Marty Thomas is gonna talk to you, I'm gonna talk to you, you're gonna stand on the stage, there's gonna be a connection. And the mentorship idea of it, which then takes us to the classes. So I wanted to have not just like your typical, let me fit 400 people in a room and get as much, but have it to be more where they're learning how to dance for film. What does it feel like on set from the people doing it? Yeah. Chris Catelli had said yes. Josh Burgoss had said yes. You know, this is right when, you know, we were just about to maybe do our first event. You know, I have this incredible group of people that were like, yes, Rochelle, you can put, use me on your website. And yes, I will do that and teach when I can. So my goal with that as with a partner also, she owns a dance competition called Starbound. We were very connected in the past few years when I had Delilah. It was a great partnership because I went out, I was a mentor for her company. I would talk to people. It was a nice way for me to work in a different way. Yeah. And so we decided to partner up and do Ignite Dance Live. Now I will say Marty Thomas, cut to my friends and showbiz friends, we've taken it to the virtual. So we've done one show a month, every month since the pandemic and people upload their videos from their yard, their garage, their street, the dance studio. We're watching them work in the pandemic and how they're continuing to dance. We don't give trophies, we give honors of a private lesson with one of us. And right now that's via Zoom. So that's like Marty will give a co vocal coaching. I'll give a musical theater or a dance. There's a partnering. Julius joined us and he's doing like a partnering for a duet. So it's about learning, Brad. And I just think sometimes there's so many successful, incredible conventions out there and I commend them. And we wanted to try to bring something 
of the live to it, which was connection to the stage immediately on the microphone, being able to present yourself, not just as a dancer, but to talk. Mm. And also to have that connection that it wasn't about a trophy or first, second, and third place. And it was really about the critiques and moving forward and how can I help you maybe in your dance career. That's the idea. You know, we're planning now November show, I think it's the 12th through the 14th in 2021 in Pittsburgh. So we had a venue in Pittsburgh that we had to push back to have this at the Hyatt at the airport, November 12th to the 14th. And that will be a convention. That might be our first, who knows? Yeah. You don't know exactly, you know, because that's like a Broadway situation. You have a lot of people, you have a lot of people, parents, kids, in and out. It's a hard thing to kind of make happen. Yeah. And you want to do it the right way. Well, you mentioned being a mentor. There's also something called Storm that you're creating, and that's yes. a mentorship program. So yes. tell me about that. So I'll tell you the difference. Here's the difference. Sometimes it's very hard for a dance studio to afford to fly you, put you up and have you teach. It's hard to do. And also they can't bring, every student can't go to the dance convention where you stay over, pay for the hotel and all of that. So I thought, what if I'm the only person going and I give a selection of what kind of storm do you want? You know, I made the downpour, the selection of classes from tap, a meteor shower to a talk back to, so you get to select a certain amount of classes. Everything that I do well, tapping, musical theater, jazz, all of that fossey acting, you know, beginning to acting, all of it. So you can select your storm or your downpour package and I fly myself, I put myself up, it's all included in this package. And you decide, you get six hours of whatever classes you pick. And then there's also time that I get to watch your numbers that you've choreographed to give you feedback. So maybe you're a competitive school, maybe you're doing a performance, maybe you want a pro professional to give you feedback on work you're doing. So then not only am I teaching on Saturday and Sunday for only you, I think also dance studios don't want to lose your students to someone else that's just down the street. And, you know, we live that way. You know, dance studios were not on every block when I was growing up. Yeah. And now they are. So it might make people feel like safe, like this is an in-house experience that you're getting here. It's with Rochelle. You know, this is what we're going to do all day. And then we're going to perform for her costumes or no costumes or whatever, but it's all in your studio. So you're saving on hotels and all of that and just having me come there. And Storm, you know, from Sass to Rack to Rocky, I've had a lot of nicknames, but there's nothing more I think that suits me than being like every kind of Storm you can imagine. That's kind of in my DNA. So it just seemed appropriate to name it that. So that's my hope for me going out into the world, Rochelle Rack, and doing what I do for different dance studios or schools. Well, since you got all dolled up, I want to take a picture of you, a screenshot, but yeah. with the thing behind you that says, Sass and Shred. So Sass and Shred came into my life randomly. Again, like I post things on Instagram, I'm doing workouts, I'm doing free Sass classes during the pandemic. 
And I had like an outreach from Broadway On Demand, a new platform saying, you know, we know your work, we know who you are, are you interested in doing anything maybe in the fitness? We're looking for some sort of fitness idea. Could you pitch some episodes? It was literally, I was like, you know, when you read something, you're like, what is this? Okay. So from all of that, like little bit of pitching I was telling you about that I was working on with reality television ideas that didn't happen yet, I was like, sure I can. So I immediately was thinking SAS, fit, SAS, this, that, you know, we talked about different ideas back and forth with Broadway On Demand. And it was a 15 minute idea, 15 or 16 minutes of fitness. And I came up with fit for your body. And because so much about a dancer is just fit for five, six and skinny. And that's how I grew up and it's not what it is and it's not okay. And that's not what it is anymore. So yeah. I wanted to go fit for your body whatever that is. Does that mean just getting a little bit more fit, a little stronger? Do you want to drop a few pounds? Whatever you want. So the slogan stuck and they liked it. And then we were throwing around titles like Sass and Shred or different things. So we went with that. They sent me lights. I had two cameras. I was using two different iPhones. I did a whole setup. I was scared to death, Brad. They were like, can you use a mic pack and upload it and all? And I was like, sure. I mean, I know nothing. <laughs> I was like, of course, yes, I'll learn anything. You know, I talked to my agent and we were just like, okay, let's just pitch 15 episodes and see if they will do it. And so I literally, it was that survival. I had nothing, I had zero happening. And I thought, how am I going to make it, keep my house, live my life? Like, how am I gonna do this? And so Sass and Shred came in my path. I mean, it was like a miracle. It was a miracle email. You know one of those emails where you're like, what? Yeah. And then they actually were like, yes, we want to do it. So Sass and Shred now is, if I were to grab something, because I have stuff here, I used anything you had in your house because we all didn't have our inside gyms. So I was using a backpack with weights. I was using anything that you could work out with. And then I needed a logo. They did this logo. I'm going to show you this side. So they literally, that is a full Rochelle Rack poster. Tim Alex, a dear friend of both of ours for many years, a long time ago, who's the godfather of my daughter. He is a great artist. So we all have different things, right? Yeah. I said to him, do you think you could do a spray painted look on my wall? Do you think you could like come up with something? I mean, this was a garage, nothing. What he did make it look like what the lettering looked like. He, so he came out here, basically was supposed to be a one day job, it was a two day job. And he created this entire area is Sass and Shred. And he did another wall that says Sass Studios. So my husband is like, what the hell happened to my garage? Like <laughs> he lost the garage completely. I have a keyboard over there, the weights over there. I'm out of control, but you realize, and I give my students this and students all around the world this, they are dancing wherever they can. They're taking Zoom lessons. They're staying connected. It is so deserving of praise because they're making it happen in their space. So that's basically what I did, Brad. And I pitched a show called Sass and Shred and I did ridiculous fun. I picked all of the music. I used my theme song that I wrote with Martin X and Sass is out there and it's on Broadway On Demand. And it's part of their package, which is like $10 a month for so many shows from 
fitness to dance to Tara Rubin casting of what they're looking for, insight of writing. They really tried to create a platform for people that can learn from for not too much money. And they just happen to be launching at this time. All of those things that kind of come together, I'm sh I have no idea. I'm still shocked that it happened. Now I'm like, I have a, a million other ideas. And you can't just think there's one defining moment of your life or one answer or one break. There's not. You have to create it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You have to keep rolling, keep going. And when I was younger, and I don't know if you feel this way, when I was set on something, that was it. That was the end all. And if it didn't happen, it affected me, you know, and now I don't carry any of that. I'm just like, okay, that didn't work. Or they didn't like that one. What's next? I've realized that I want to be like the little name at the bottom that just created it. I don't need to be in it. That's a big change. Well, speaking of big changes, your mom went from being your big, strong caretaker to now your hurt caretaker. You also have your husband, your daughter Delilah, and your stepson who you've been raising since he was five years old, but he's away at Penn State. All of this during a pandemic. And trying to survive and not losing your house. Like, how are you holding that up? Yeah, and not losing my sanity. <laughs> um, you know, just when you say that, you know, I don't know if you felt this way, but people meet your mom or your parent or whatever, especially my mom. You know, I only see her as what she was, this strong strength. Like, even though at 82, she's not that, it's still, it's ingrained in your brain, like this image. So I always feel like when people meet her, like, you know, God, they, they didn't get to meet the, the Rosaline that she is, the woman that she was. Like I start, I start to feel all these things. It's an interesting time in my life because I don't know sometimes whether to tell my daughter to stop or make sure my mother doesn't fall down. Like I'm like, yeah. everybody stop. When we get out of the car, who do I help first? You know, who do I go to first? And that being said, it's the greatest gift in my life because I didn't know or think that I was gonna have a child and it happened very late for me. I was 43 years old and everyone said it couldn't happen and you know I am so blessed and now you know my mother would say to me when when I had Delilah couldn't you have done it 10 years ago you know she's like did you have to wait till I was 77 but it's a gift you know I always say it's very hard and everything that you want or you want to try to do it the right way it's hard there's no easy way the good thing is she's not like a nosy person and she's not like a tell you what to do all the time person you would think because she's so strong or was like in that way she was never one to say what to do. And, and so that probably helped. She's kind of like, okay, she knows how to read me, like leave her alone. It's like, what do they call it? The wrath of rack. Like that, there's another good saying. When I'm on like one of those moments, keep clear. But in a time when my mother was born and grew up the elderly were taken care of by their kids and that's changed, you know, and that's not something that often it happens. I hear people do it and I see people moving in their parents and I, and I think it's real blessing because it's very hard. She's fine, but you know, as time goes on, I just pray that she stays strong and I'm so grateful. I'm grateful. She taught me how to be the best woman I could be, whether that was right all the time, it doesn't matter. It was the best that she knew. And so now I can teach my daughter to be the best person person, the best human. I find myself saying human a lot. I don't want to offend anyone in any gender, anything, anyone trans, where they're changing, where they're born a certain way, because I'm trying to learn. It's a new vocabulary. And that's an honest feeling, you know, right now is how to just be honest and say, I don't really know everything or how to word it. But if I can teach Delilah to be strong, good human, then I'm going to fulfill this chapter of my life.
it's interesting. I used to refer to people like you as fearless, but then as I've been researching like other stuff in life, a person who's fearless isn't thinking and a person who's brave acknowledges their fears and goes forward anyway. That's what I definitely think about you. So of this long, incredible career that you have and life, is there one or two moments that you're just like, nothing can top that moment? I don't know. You think back and you go, well, the first big break that you get is a great moment of, of your life. Like you look back, but to top a moment, it's to realize when there was no hope in life or just you couldn't get out of something those are the probably the darkest moments became the most hopeful ending my drinking career is a big one it's huge changed everything about my life i'm grateful for it having a child and being blessed to be a mother i am shocked and grateful for it those are probably two that i would say really stand out and i'm not sure where in there brad it happened but really learning to just like myself without all of the bells and whistles and circus tricks and hot pants and you know opening nights yeah you know, really to just go i like this person that i'm becoming i couldn't agree with you even more i'm liking myself more now and i'm like i haven't really been on a stage in a long time especially sadly a broadway stage and now i'm much happier in a weird way because i'm validating myself as a person not as a performer that needs to happen yeah. You and I are very similar in that way because you start to believe you almost are this other person. Like you've created this. I felt exhausted trying to live up to what people thought of me. Did you ever feel going into an audition that you couldn't live up to your own reputation? Yes, absolutely. That wore me out. Like I just kept thinking, I don't know that I can be Rochelle Rack or what they think Rochelle Rack is today. Yeah. But seeing you in this capacity and like being still and feeling all of your presence i have to say like i'm honored to be here with you i'm so proud of what you're doing for others and thank you for taking the time to care about my life oh absolutely you're fascinating and also i think you're a great example and role model as a performer but also as a strong woman as a human as a mother so i definitely want uh, to get that out there so i usually end every episode with a, a song as it goes out you mentioned that you're also a songwriter and like you have songs with steven skills so you do everything am i just one of those people that's just terrible at everything but i just say i do everything I do no everything. I, i've seen some of your songs in your music videos come on they're good and what you said is that you've come up with your brand so we're gonna close this out with one of the songs that you wrote do you have a preference Oh, I would say, give me a little sass, honey. All right. Sass it up. Yes. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This was really, really, really so great. It's so great to talk to you. Please stay connected and I will check out everything that you're doing. And I appreciate your time and oh. just your love always. My pleasure. I still see you doing that opening dance. I, when I see you, I see you killing it. That's what I see. But look at the person that you've, you know, look how we've changed. It's wonderful. Yeah, you really have. I love you. Have a good night. I'm going to check on my fam. Okay, go. Stand back. I'm coming through. I've got no time for you. I'm not in the mood. I've got an attitude. I've got my FMPs. I've got my hair and cheese. I've got my glitz and glee. I'm bringing MOS with me.
Persian swirl I'm gonna sigh and twirl I'm gonna strut and giggle The sass is in the wiggle I'm gonna deuce your doll My stems are walking tall I'm buzzing, feeling sweet I'm fronting you your beat just um, recorded, you know, I thought I'd make an effort. Well, of course. I even have heels on under this table. I just want you to know.